0: an investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome back one of my favorite guests, Dr. Margaret Reeves. She holds a Ph.D. from the University of Michigan in agroecology. She did a postdoc at The Ohio State University. Her expertise is pesticides and agroecology, and she is a senior scientist at the Pesticide Action Network Based in Berkeley, California. Before joining the Pesticide Action Network in 1996, Dr. Reeves spent most of nine years in Central America teaching and conducting research in tropical agricultural ecology. She worked with university colleagues and non government organizations to improve productivity of low input ecologically sound agricultural methods. And we'll dive into what agroecology is during our conversation. But since the early 1980s, she has worked in support of farm worker rights. She's a member of the New World Agriculture and Ecology Group and is a founding board member of the Equitable Food Initiative. At the Pesticide Action Network, Dr. Reeves focuses on regenerative, climate-friendly agriculture and environmental health and justice, with an emphasis on farmworker health and safety. She is a co-author of a brand new report, Pesticides and Climate Change, a Vicious Cycle, and that is what we're going to be focusing mostly on today. Welcome, Margaret.
1: Thank you very
0: much for having me.
1: It's a great pleasure.
0: Thank you very much for your report, Pesticides and Climate Change. I feel like in our discussions about the food system and climate, and of course they are intimately related because agriculture is very much dependent on a reliable climate, we really don't talk about the role of pesticides. And I was hoping that you might help us pull back the curtain on why this is such an important topic. Can you tell us how pesticides and climate change are related?
1: Absolutely.
0: and Thank you for the question. And that was really the central part of this
1: report, as you point out. So backing up a tiny bit, pesticides we consider really as the linchpin of industrial agriculture that is dependent on chemicals, pesticides, and fertilizers alike. And so we talk about many of the ills of agriculture. We know From recent research, that agriculture generally contributes about a third of all the greenhouse gases emitted in the world. But the piece of it that we don't talk about really is the pesticides. And there, in fact, hasn't been that much research on it. So we delved into that to ask the question and try to answer it about what is the role of pesticides with respect to agriculture's contribution to climate change and greenhouse gas emissions. So that was the gist of this. And we found out that pesticides are contributors in a number of different ways. And what's really important is looking at the entire life cycle. First, we saw that pesticides contribute greenhouse gases in their use in the field, especially fumigant pesticides. And I can talk about that in a little bit more detail. But we went all the way back to the manufacture of pesticides. The vast majority of pesticides are derived from fossil fuels. So that is the petroleum extracted from the earth and then manufactured into various products that are the precursors of the pesticides and the amount of energy used to produce the pesticides from those precursors. And in fact, it takes about 10 times the amount of energy to produce a kilogram of pesticides on average it varies quite a bit, that it does a kilogram of fertilizer, nitrogen. And that's interesting because we know about the connection between fertilizers and the evolution of nitrous oxide, an important greenhouse gas. Mm -hmm. Nobody was talking about pesticides.
0: Well, I think that this bears repeating. The fact that petroleum products are necessary to produce synthetic pesticides. I had no idea.
1: Right. So it's both the materials that go into them and the energy required to formulate the pesticides and transport them and apply them, and then once they're applied, additional emissions of greenhouse gases.
0: I want to go back to something you mentioned, and that was fumigants in particular, I failed to mention that along with this excellent report, you've also hosted two webinars. And I will provide links to those webinars as well as the report in our show notes. But you've got an image of a field, and I'm assuming this is in California, where a fumigant is applied to a vast piece of land, and then a plastic sheet is applied on top of the soil. I'm not familiar with that kind of agriculture. I'm based in the Midwest, and so I see the herbicide applications to mostly genetically modified corn and soybeans. An increasing number of pesticides and herbicides, I might add. But I've never seen a field covered with fumigants and then plastic on top. For our listeners that are not based in California – Tell me about this practice, and how often is it used, and for what crops?
1: It's used for a number of crops, but the most obvious one that one sees frequently in the fall, and it depends on where in the state, but along the coast, is strawberry production. And soil fumigants are gaseous pesticides. They either turn into gases immediately or apply as such designed to penetrate the soil profile. So they have to be very mobile. They have to be gaseous because they have to penetrate this three-dimensional soil to kill nematodes and bacterial and fungal diseases of plants. And we can get to those agricultural systems that don't have those problems and don't need fumigation, but in these large-scale monoculture production of strawberries, and some others. What they do before the season is they cover the field in plastic so that those gaseous fumigants don't escape, so that they stay where they're supposed to stay until the plastic is released or they escape in small amounts. So not only are you applying the fumigants in really large quantities, more than other pesticides because they have to fumigate this large three-dimensional volume. But they also require, and the picture shows, workers in the field standing out there with no protective equipment, putting soil up along the edge of the plastic after the fumigants applied. So the fumigant itself, we can talk about it's their direct contribution to greenhouse gases. They're highly hazardous, very toxic, and you've got workers in the field standing right there covering the edges of the plastic, and then you've got the plastic to deal with after the fact.
0: So what happens to that plastic?
1: It gets dumped. There's no way to recycle what is called film plastics. You can recycle the soda bottles etc. But there's no effective recycling for these film plastics.
0: Wow. And so mostly the fumigant you're talking about is sulfural fluoride. Is that correct?
1: Well, no. Actually, in agriculture, there is telone or 1,3-dichloropropene. There's metham, sodium. There used to be nickel bromide, which took, oh, 20 or 30 years to finally, mostly get rid of. So there are a lot of different, well, there are a handful of fumigants used in agriculture, but sulfural fluoride we highlighted because it has about 5,000 times the potency of carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas, 5,000 times. And sulfur fluoride is used some in agriculture, but mostly to tent houses. So you might see it in urban settings, and it's also used to fumigate produce and grain in storage. Oh my. Yeah, it's incredible. And so some of the other fumigants that I mentioned have been shown to increase nitrous oxide production in soils by seven to eight times what is in the untreated soil. And nitrous oxide has about 300 times the potency of carbon dioxide. So remember, when we talk about the potency of greenhouse gases, it's all relative to carbon dioxide. So people are familiar with carbon dioxide emissions from burning fossil fuels and whatnot, and that's the standard by which to compare. So we've got nitrous oxide, 300 times more potent. Of course, methane is an important greenhouse gas. And then we've got fluoride as a specific fumigant that is also a greenhouse gas.
0: And you also mention how these fumigants and other pesticides and herbicides affect soil, microbial, and fungal communities that are, of course, the non-target organisms, but they play a crucial role in soil carbon sequestration. So it seems that we're getting a double whammy in that not only are we getting the greenhouse gas emissions, but we're also destroying the very beneficial organisms that help provide healthy soil, healthy plants, healthy communities, and carbon sequestration.
1: Correct. Carbon sequestration and I'll just say the, the nitrogen cycling. So super important role of the soil microbial community is the cycling of carbon and nitrogen. So of course, as the critters are respiring, they're releasing carbon dioxide, but as the population of the biology of the soil increases, those bodies incorporate a lot of carbon in addition to the less active carbon that's in the soil. So a healthy soil has a lot of carbon stored in it and not released out into the atmosphere. And it's that biology, the creation of that soil organic carbon as part of soil organic matter, if you've heard that term, And it's the microbes and the larger organisms in the soil together that are essential for those processes, for cycling the carbon, for building soil carbon, for cycling the nitrogen, providing nitrogen to the crops so that nitrogen fertilizer is not needed. If you've got a vibrant, healthy soil, you need no pesticides and you need no or very little Nitrogen fertilizer, in the best-case scenario, you have your nitrogen input supplied by composts and manures and the like if you have animals on or near the farm.
0: All right. I want to move from California to the Midwest where a lot of genetically modified crops, commodity crops, are grown, specifically corn and soy. And, of course, the first generation of genetically modified crops were resistant to spraying with glyphosate. And you've got a statistic here. You're talking about the energy used to produce herbicides. And You say that the energy used to produce the amount of glyphosate used globally, and this was in 2014, equals the energy needed to fuel about 6.25 million cars for one year. I don't think that we connect those dots between the fossil fuel in producing the glyphosate and the greenhouse gases related to that.
1: Right. To produce glyphosate means you first have to extract the petroleum, then you have to formulate the product and transport it and apply it. And all of that takes up all of that energy, which is also supplied by fossil fuel, mostly. In addition to that, the application of glyphosate to soil messes up the microbial cycles in different ways. And studying the soil biology is also super complicated because there are millions and millions of organisms doing different things, (laughs) And so it's very, very complex. So all I can say at this point, and then we've studied it elsewhere, and I don't have that in front of me, but the application of glyphosate to the soil not only embodies the energy and greenhouse gas implications that we've spoken of today, but also takes a big toll on the functioning of that soil microbial community, which is so very important for nitrogen and carbon cycles, among other things, to keep the the agricultural system healthy, vibrant, resistant to pests, and therefore leading to less pesticide use as
0: well. Yeah, this is fascinating. I need to take one break because we're halfway through, and I want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking today with Dr. Margaret Reeves. She is a senior scientist at the Pesticide Action Network, which is based in Berkeley, California. However, they also have offices throughout the country and the world, and they recently released a new report titled Pesticides and Climate Change A Vicious Cycle. There are two webinars associated with this report, and I will provide both of those in our show notes. Okay, Margaret, I want to talk about some of the smoke and mirrors that apply to looking at greenhouse gas reduction and climate policy, because I think that your report uniquely identifies these issues. The first is we are seeing more, quote unquote, climate smart labeling and climate smart Practices, One of which includes no-till agriculture, which is accompanied by the use of herbicides. How on earth can we be calling that climate smart?
1: We can't. <laughs> that said, one of the key pieces of agroecology, which includes the very good practices of building ecosystem biodiversity and healthy soil, etc., One of the associated practices is no or minimum till, but done in a way that is not accompanied by the use of herbicides. So in agriculture, one of the problems is weeds, or oftentimes the problems are weeds. With parenthetically saying that when you've got highly diverse systems that with the ground-covered all the time. Actually, weed problems are way reduced. But let's go back to where weed problems are considered very, very important. So in the age of chemical pesticides and herbicides are, of course, one of those, the easiest way is to dump a bunch of herbicides on and kill the plants. The more costly way is having people labor to cultivate the soil or machinery to cultivate the soil. And so there are different ways to cultivate. And some of the really exciting tools and methods are being developed by and for organic producers all around the world who don't use herbicides, who do have weed problems, oftentimes less than in big commodity operations. But they have very innovative tools that have been created to help with that weed problem. And yes, no-till is very important because if you disturb the soil with tillage, then a lot of that good organic matter will become oxidized and will basically burn off. So it's very good to keep the soil less disturbed. No-till sounds good, but how you manage it matters a lot.
0: Mm -hmm. All right. Another term precision ag. We hear this a lot at land-grant colleges. Precision ag is the modern way. We're going to use technology as a tool to solve climate change problems. What is precision ag, and what's wrong with that? Great question. And
1: yes. Technology is the boon for agriculture, and in many ways, there are some very important methods and technologies, like I just mentioned, in organic production. Some very good new tools, but precision ag is the idea that with using artificial intelligence and computer technology and GPS technologies, you can better identify where more precisely the pest problems are, or nutrient needs, and then target the application of the pesticide, therefore reducing the use of the pesticide. So that, in and of itself, is a tiny step in the right direction, but it does nothing to eliminate the dependence on pesticides. So yes, precision ag might help us use a little bit less of the nasty product that we shouldn't be using in the first place. So really the focus should be how do we create biologically healthy, active, vigorous, vibrant agricultural systems that do not rely on pesticides in the first place.
0: Right. And I want to bring up a point that you made in the second webinar that the Pesticide Action Network aired, and it was a comment that you made about public land-grant institutions And was it the Rodale Institute way back in 1953 who predicted that our land-grant ag institutions would be dominated by research funded by and for the agricultural industrial system?
1: (laughs) That was a great magazine that I found. It was the magazine that was published by what is now the Rodale Institute, yeah, and I quite frankly, I, I wished I had kept that article, but yes, you're absolutely right. There was a prediction back in 1953 that the agendas and for research and teaching were going to increasingly be dominated by the interests of the agrochemical companies, and yes, in fact, very much it has happened that way which is really sad because the mission of the land-grant universities is to serve the public, the public interest. And in agriculture, of course, that's farmers of all kinds and sizes, not just the large industrial-scale commodity crops. So, yeah, and in fact, we see very much that that has happened. And on the other hand, there are some good programs At those land-grant universities, often very much smaller in budget and perhaps influence than those chemical-dependent programs, but there is some really good research, education, outreach happening both at the land-grant universities and in other institutions all around the country.
0: I agree. And the reason why I brought that up is because it is a call for public funding for public research. And that's where those dollars to support agroecological research are going to come from, I think. Would you agree?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, this is a farm bill year. Every five years, approximately, the federal government, the Congress, passes this omnibus package, very large, $250 billion package of policies that largely drive how the government supports agriculture in this country. And the vast majority of that is either going in to perpetuate the continued production of commodity crops dependent on chemical inputs, and a big chunk is also in the food stamp program. But There's a small and very important, and we refer to it as the small but mighty set of conservation programs. And those conservation programs all across the country help farmers implement the kinds of agroecological practices that we've alluded to. And those small but mighty programs are things that we're going to be fighting very, very hard to keep and to support in what's going to be a more difficult Congress this year than it was in the 2018 Farm Bill. So if you listeners out there hear from your favorites and nonprofit organizations that are doing Farm Bill work, take advantage of opportunities to weigh in and to alert your representatives, to encourage them to support these conservation programs, programs to help low-income farmers of color throughout the country, those who have historically been underserved in the federal farm bill programs. And so there's going to be a lot of shout out and call for support for this upcoming farm bill.
0: I'm so glad you brought up the farm bill because that was on my list as a call to action. I want to get back, however, to one last smoke and mirror issue that I think is confusing, I know, at least to me, and maybe for others, and that has to do with carbon markets. And you brilliantly bring that up in this report, and I think it's so important for us to understand what those are and how they play into climate change mitigation or not. What do you see as being the issue with carbon markets?
1: Carbon market is an approach that, in this capitalist economy, is an approach to value carbon that farmers can incorporate into their soils or into their landscapes and pay them for doing that. However, one of those carbon market schemes around the globe has not panned out to either reduce the overall carbon emissions or to, in reality, benefit any of the producers, but what they have done is they've allowed the emitting industries, the big fossil fuel-related industries, to continue poisoning the environment because they're allowed to buy what are called these offsets. So they can basically buy farmers or forestry folks to plant trees or build soil organic carbon and let themselves get off the hook and continue polluting. So that's one of the most egregious examples of the carbon market. And the other forms just have really not panned out. As being effective, it's really hard to figure out what the right cost is, the cost structure. And if you charge too much, nobody's going to pay it. If you pay too little, it's irrelevant to the practitioners. And really, the bottom line should be not who's going to pay me to do this Carbon sequestration, but do I get a fair price for the crops that I grow and the crops that I sell? While I'm protecting the soil, protecting the water, protecting the air, protecting the community and the workers on my farm, those are the things that should be valued. Those are the things that should go into a fair price for the farmer for the food that they grow, and a fair price to the workers who work on those farms, and a fair price for the food that people pay as long as people make enough money so that they can buy the food. And that that food dollar should go to the farmers. The vast majority should go to the farmers, not to the processors and the retailers and the big box stores.
0: Right. Well, Margaret, this report is truly informative and it's easy for the reader to get a big picture view We're out of time. Is there any last message you want to leave our listeners with?
1: Just please visit our website at www.panna.org, and you can see a lot of information about the campaigns we're working on and, of course, the science of these different areas about pesticide impacts on communities, on workers, and, of course, agroecology.
0: Thank you. What I love about this report is it connects the dots between climate change, how we produce our food, and the critical role that synthetic pesticide use plays in increasing greenhouse gas emissions, and the fact that this discussion about synthetic pesticides has really been omitted from the climate change solution conversation. So credits to you and the Pesticide Action Network. I want to thank our listeners for joining us Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Margaret Reeves. She is a senior scientist at the Pesticide Action Network based in Berkeley, California. She holds a Ph.D. in agroecology from the University of Michigan, and she has a postdoc from The Ohio State University. Dr. Reeves, Margaret, Thank you so much for being my guest today and helping us understand a much bigger picture when it comes to climate change.
1: And thank you very much for covering this important topic.